Hello and welcome to Ride the Omnibus. I'm your host, Ariel Basca, and I could not be more pleased about today's episode, not just because we have an Oscar winner on the program for the first time, nor just because I get to nerd out about sound, which is one of the most important things to me, but we also get to talk about one of the most important films of the year, in my opinion, which is Sound of Metal, and exactly how the most important pieces of that film came together. I'm so delighted to welcome Philip Blade to talk about sound mixing and design and engineering and how it all came together on the set of Sound of Metal. This movie, Sound of Metal, meant so much to me. That's part of why I really was so eager to talk to you about it. Well, you identify as hard of hearing, is that right? I do, I do. Okay. I mean, that's. Um, I'm finding that's a more common thing that I've come across with this, where a lot of people are like, oh, I love that movie. It, you know, it, it kind of spoke to me in a way that... And I think a lot of people aren't necessarily open about their hard of hearing so this has maybe opened it up a little bit for them to be like, oh, let's talk about it, which is pretty awesome, I think. I think it's incredible how it's opened up the conversation as a whole, because I don't think a lot of people were necessarily that vocal about what their experience is like until they saw it reflected back at them on screen and in the sound mix. I think for some people, it's been kind of like a, uh, I'm this way, I'm that way, or I'm the other way, you know, because the movie's kind of broken into three separate parts. Mm-hmm. People who are metal musicians have come up to me and said, that's not metal, that's punk rock, or that's like hardcore emo or something. And I'm like, okay. And other people who are metal musicians are like, oh, no, that's totally my life. Then there's also been the people who've gone through the, I can't hear, but I could a week ago. And it was terrifying. And the way it's depicted in the movie, it's either, wow, that was my life, or, oh, man, that's just like not how it was for me at all. I feel like maybe the way it was dramatically, he had like 90% of his hearing and then he had like 20% the next day. I don't know if that's necessarily how it goes. And that's kind of been my question, too, about the movie. I'm like, is this really how it is? Because as a, as a sound, as an audio guy... In life, to me, when I read the script, it it read like a horror drama. It's like, this is what will happen. The thing that I I find interesting about that, though, is that you're not trying to reflect the universal in the film. And that's what I appreciated about it, was that it was reflecting a specific individual's experience. And I, I say this a lot, that I feel like in the specific, you find the universal, and in the universal, you find the specific. Sure. I mean... It's not completely unlike a piece of like music where on Monday you might listen to it and something might happen to you by Friday and you're like, is this written about me? You know, like it depends on kind of how you are during the given moment that you watch or you take it in. But I can also tell you from my own personal experience, I have had what I call deaf days. I I don't have 90% hearing anymore, but where I go from like 70% hearing to... 20% hearing. And there's a dramatic drop off that'll sometimes happen. 
And sometimes I have very little I can hear at all and everything in the world is muffled. And the first time that ever happened to me, I was constantly irrigating my ear with water. And to see that reflected on screen in the sound mixing, as well as what was happening through the cinematography was just absolutely incredible. So. Yeah, the way that this um, actually, let me just say this first and then a question for you about that. Um, the way this movie was kind of approached was different than most movies. For sound, usually you kind of go with the perspective of what the audience is seeing. So uh, have you ever worked on a movie set? Mm-hmm. Okay. So say that the camera lens is here and then there's, it's filming like a door, right? And then if someone's in front of the door and we can see the person from the door, then you'll hear their, their audio as if it's just like we were standing next to them. But if say, if someone's on the other side of the door and the camera is just filming the door, then it would be like a muffled through a door sound because that's kind of how camera perspective work. Or I, I believe that's kind of the more, the most traditional form yeah. of like film and how, how it works. You can communicate something. I mean, it's similar with somebody on a phone, you know, you can cut back and forth between, what it sounds like if they're in the room and then if they're talking to someone on the other end of the phone, you hear their phone sound while the other person is going and back and forth. It's a way to communicate with the audience. You know, this is how sound is in real life. And this is how uh, it would be if you were actually in the room when this movie was happening. And uh, Sound of Metal was approached totally different. It was, we want to be inside the character's head. So we're seeing the world, how it looks as a, you know, regular person as a regular audience member and then we're hearing what he's hearing so we're kind of going along the journey with him and so i would be looking at the video monitors that they were setting up thinking okay well what would it sound like to him right now and what do we need to service and it was tricky sometimes too because we had to kind of service the audience and the inside of the head at the same time mm-hmm. because a lot of that was going to be kind of decided in the editing room it was going to be this is going to be here or there, or it'll be a combo. I mean, we knew that going in. We also knew that the post-production team would be kind of embellishing everything we did. So we kind of streamlined a process where we could capture both at the same time. And how we accomplished that was through a series of uh, additional mics. So when you're shooting a movie, typically it's the actors wearing their mic, and then you also have the boom mic. But what we ended up adding to that were these contact mics or plant mics where we would just throw things under surfaces or we would add a layer of sound and it's time coded and set and ready to go. And they could switch between it and post almost like if you had six characters in a, in a scene and they all were wearing mics, then you'd be able to switch between this person's mic, this person's mic, this person's mic. The way we had it set up on sound of metal a lot of times was that they could either switch between what the regular perspective was or his perspective. And we record a lot of that kind of on set on the day through contacts mics. Again, we would, we'd place them on surfaces. Like if he was on a keyboard, he'd be typing and there would be like a, a contact sound or a, t- or a, a table. There's a scene where he's like banging on a drum on a, on a slide. Yeah. It's like, Oh, cool. Let's stick a contact mic under there. And then other scenes when we knew that it was going to be like heavily used, you know, for example, in the script, it says, we hear the inside of Ruben's uh, head and here's this or that. Like this scene at the table where they're all banging on the table or another one is when he loses his hearing where the, the audiologist is like, don't 
expose yourself to loud sounds and then cut to him playing a really loud concert and everyone yeah. in the audience goes, no. Yeah. <laughs> that was the scene where Riz was actually wearing an, an additional mic. So he had his regular mic and then he had another thing. It was a microphone we ordered from Germany. It didn't even have a logo. It was something we just, um, Nicholas Becker, the um, sound supervisor and I, we had a conversation and he says, I think we should try ordering some contact mics. And uh, he had more experience than I did. So he recommended some here, there. And I went through and kind of weighed the options of how fast could we get these and what do they sound like and went through all the reviews and, the one we had, uh, we ordered from a website in Germany and it was overnighted to us. And it, it looked like a piece of double-sided tape, just like clear. It was like a clear kind of rectangular with a bunch of wires sticking out of it and then just kind of connected to one of those wireless lav packs that an actor would wear. Yeah. And he would wear that like taped to his back kind of right here. And it kind of recreated the sound of if you take your, your hands and you stick them over your ears yeah. and you get kind of inner body sound or... If you're like underwater in the tub, it kind of has a similar. And so they could kind of switch between that and the regular perspective. And then we'd also stick it inside of the drums and stuff too. And it kind of helped us to, to, to open the box, you know, and, and come up with some ideas that were a little bit more grounded, but also streamlined with the way we were shooting the movie. Because we were still shooting a film, you know, in, in like four weeks. And we only had the actors for so many days, so we couldn't spend hours doing these sonic experiments yeah. that would never make it. We had to make sure that what we were getting was done and it was done well, and that would create an environment that they could, if nothing else, kind of a blueprint for them to be like, okay, we have a reference to what actually happened. Now let's take that and add like layers on top of it. So mine was my, kind of more the foundation of what I think they accomplished. Um, and most of that was all during the, uh, you know, when he's fully deaf part of the movie. Yeah. All the stuff with the cochlear implant, that was all sound designed. Yeah. So I was so fascinated, though, in terms of the way that the frequencies were specifically designed to be at different levels. Like, so often you hear people not really playing around as effectively with frequency and the idea that the lower level frequencies are going to be so pronounced compared to anything else. Yeah. And I loved that about the film as well. That kind of came about too, from the uh, contact mics, I think, cause it was a definitely a low level rumble. I mean, I was not in the post process, so I cannot speak you know, it, it's like saying that the cinematographer knows what the editor's tricks were. I'm, I'm not sure what their tricks were, but I know that that's a, that's very much what the contact mic sounded like. It was like a low rumble. And when I would listen to it uh, on my headphones while we were filming it, I would very much question and be like, this is just garbage sounding. Like, would we ever use this? And it turned out that they did and they enjoyed it. And you know, I had a really great guy working with me, uh, Jeremy Eisner from Boston. He was the boom operator. And any single time I was like, oh, man, should we do this? He's like, yeah, let's do it. He was very much game for it as well, which when you're having like an inner kind of why, it's so great to have somebody to bounce ideas off of. 
Mm-hmm. And he was integral in the creation of just let's stick it here. Let's stick it there. You know, I remember one time he stuck it underneath a plate and then taped the wire down with white tape because like he was eating off of a plate. And I was like, Whoa, where'd you put it? And he's like, it's right here. <laughs> like he would just think, and he knew that we'd wanted another layer and he was just completely 100% down for doing it all. Um, another thing that him and I did that didn't actually make it in the movie was a scene where you hear Ruben uh, drumming after he sells his Airstream, he brings his drums into the, the deaf community and he's just there wailing on his drums and then cut to a wide shot of all the deaf kids and they're holding these giant balloons and they're sitting on the floor like around him in like a semicircle. And the idea there is that he's so loud and it used to be so loud. He can play as loud as he wants. And, um, the vibrations will come up through the floor into the balloon so they can kind of hear the boom, 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 boom. And I was like, Oh, great. Awesome. Okay. Let's, let's get a sandbag. Let's put a balloon on the ground. Let's put a mic to it. And he was like, no, no, no. What you want to do is actually mic one of the kids, you know, so it's going to be the balloon they're holding. And then one of the kids will have the mic. I was like, really? You don't think the mic itself? And he was completely right. Because then you're hearing the what they're feeling, the reverberation um, through the the balloon into them. That's what would essentially be heard through the ears, not the actual balloon itself. Because that would just sound like rubber. Yeah. And I and, was like, whoa, whoa, man, you had me there. <laughs> and that definitely came through for me. Is as much the feeling of sound as the sound of sound. Yeah, it's a character in the movie for sure. Yeah, and. I mean, I understood that when we were shooting it, but when I finally saw it cut together, even for me, it clicked fully. I was like, oh, I see, you know, like, because I knew we'd be using it, but I didn't know to what extent, and I didn't know how effective it would be. Because when you film a movie, it's just a little piece here, a little piece there, a little piece there. You get your chance to kind of do it, and then you move on. And since we were actually shooting this on film as well, we only had one, two, three takes, and then we'd move on to the next thing. Yeah. So I would turn everything in, and I would, again, question it. And I'd look at the – I did my best to be prepared. I'd look at things that were coming up, looking at ideas, or um, I, I would look at things that were coming up and come up with ideas as to what we might tackle. And sometimes they were good ideas. Other times it was, well, this seems so much different in my head, you know, Another thing we had were these little portable recorders um, that you could also jam time code to um, and then just walk around with it and just get a little anything. There were times we were walking through the forest and I just hear, oh, look, there's crickets over there. So we just kind of go plant a mic on a tree and leave it there for 20 minutes and then come back. And then they had some ambience or sometimes it would rain. You know, when we were in Boston, the deaf community is right there, like off the water uh, in Northampton, Massachusetts, and there were mosquitoes everywhere. I remember actually one time I walked outside to take a phone call. You know, my wife, uh, she, anytime you get five minutes, just try to call and talk to the kids or, or whatever. And I walked outside and I came back in and everyone was like, what happened to your face? Because I'd been bitten by like 10 mosquitoes oh. and my face had like mutated. I was like, oh, whoops. Like, 
just just in a couple minutes but there was a sound of all kinds of interesting stuff outside and we would do our best to capture it i mean film sets are noisy and that's another tricky thing too between production and post if we wanted to get anything specific we'd have to shut everything down have everyone stop you know no working on the trucks no lighting we just need to spend a couple minutes doing this and sometimes we would get it and other times it'd just be too hectic and we had to move on to the next thing because it's going to be dark in an hour or we have to move to the next location i mean it's a film set and those are the kind of compromises you make but it's so interesting to me because sound editing sound mixing sound design are where i feel like a lot of the scientific experimentation takes place because it's not like you can go and do the research on exactly what's going to make the best experience for this particular movie. Sure. Yeah. And that's, that, that goes to the strength of uh, Darius, our writer director who kind of, you know, it was his story and it was an entertaining piece of, um, you know, it's a movie making, it's entertainment, but at the same time, it was, it was a very specific kind of personal story to him. Um, apparently, he's been trying to make the movie for like 10 years. And then our sound designer, Nicholas Becker, he came on board two years before we even shot. So they had kind of a good chunk there to hammer it out. And I think it kind of started with, a, hey, I'd love to make this movie someday. And, you know, they became friends through a mutual per, uh, person. And and then eventually they started laying out essentially what it would be to make Sound of Metal and how, how it would work. And when I was hired, uh, the way I got on board this project was that in Boston, they were trying to find someone who would do their movie and everyone was busy. Like, and anyone of quality, I should say, was busy. So I had worked with the two producers, Chris Stinson and Amy Green, and their line producer, Josh Gonzalez on a film in LA a couple of years before called The Lovers with Tracy Letts and, and Deborah Winger. I don't know if you're familiar with yep. it. Um, yeah. Oh, okay, great. No, that's a great movie. Yeah. That one turned out really well too. And it's a great feeling when you work in film to be called back as like, Hey, we need a sound guy call that guy. Cause he did this movie with us. And, you know, that's the, uh, Oh wow. Like, uh, thanks guys. Like I'll, I'll really step up and, and take charge here and so they called me up one day and said so we can't find anyone would you be interested and they sent me the script and i was like yeah of course this is this is a sound movie and i'm a sound guy like uh i had actually done uh, a show prior to sound of metal that had uh two deaf actors in it it was a sundance now show called this close do you know it i don't actually it's um Shoshana Stern and Josh Feldman play these two best friends and it's a comedy. Uh, so we actually had these ASL, we call them the ASL masters on set, but they were, you know, they'd be walking around with any of our deaf actors and kind of translating. And then when we would film, they would be sitting by the monitor and in real time translating into a microphone, what they were saying on a scratch channel to send to the editor so they could edit based on the scratch track, what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards they would go through and put in all the subtitles. That's a process that that producer, Mary Pat uh, Bentel and I came up with for that show. We shot two seasons of it and we did season one and then I did sound of battle. And then we did season two. 
So I had kind of been informed as to how to work with deaf actors. Um, Shoshana and Josh, they are both deaf, but very differently. Yeah. He's almost a deaf mute. You know, he laughs and he cries or he can like kind of make noises, but he almost never spoke. So we'd never put a mic on him two, two years that we were on that show because he just, we were able to get it and he just didn't need one. And I talked to him about it too, because sometimes if you see someone has like four pages of dialogue and it's all sign language, it's not silent. I mean, even the, even the sound of the, of the signing, you know, clapping, mm-hmm. snapping, whatever yeah. they, they do, it's sound and you want to get it. And I talked to him before and he's like, no, I'm totally fine with it. As long as you're confident, you can record what I'm doing. I said, yes, I can. Shoshana was different. She would actually talk. She would sign and talk at the same time. Yeah. Even when she's talking to Josh, who's, you know, there's several scenes with just her. It's just the way she talks. She's used to talking and signing at the same time. Yeah. And I learned a lot from that. And I kind of took that with me to, to Sound of Metal. You know, for example, the, the, the Jen character, uh, who's the roommate or the teacher played by Lauren Rid- Ridloff, neither one of them spoke either or made any noise. So we never mic either one of them. But there were other characters who he comes in the path with. And we would watch the rehearsal and see kind of how it was and how they actually communicated because it turns out depending on how you are in your deaf um sign language and how your sign language is not it's not there's no like oh there's one way to do it there's many different versions and the grammar can be very different depending on yeah how you choose to express it and if you choose to give grunts accompanying what you're doing I mean, some people, you know, bang on tables and, you know, wave their arms in the air where other people are so much more, you know, lip readers and they try to communicate yes. as best they can. I mean, it's, there's, there's no real kind of across the board way to communicate through that means. So there was a lot, there was a sensitive sensitivity that I could bring to it. And then on the, at the same time, I grew up as a, as a musician, well, as an amateur musician, I never actually you know, did anything professional, but I was in bands growing up and I love playing music. I still do it. I still write songs and record them. It's just a hobby that I, I'm passionate about. So movies about musicians are kind of something I'm, I'm always attracted to. I'm like a, a fly, you know, or moth to the flame to those kind of things. And I always have tons of ideas. And the way we recorded them in this movie, when they're the metal band is we filmed at the, it's a venue in Cambridge called the Middle East. It's like a, you know, it's a Middle Eastern restaurant that has a venue around the back. And they actually set them up like they were a band on tour. So on the stage, they put all the mics on the drums and then they set up her mic and the, the guitar amp. And they ran into the front of house mixer with the big board in the back. And then he would run it. He would run me a feed to my recorder. And that's how that's how I recorded the band mostly. And then I would put some plant mics or anything else around kind of the areas that I knew we would probably need because it's tricky if he's just sending me a feed of his mix and he's essentially mixing the band and I want to have a little bit more control. So I put two stereo mics, you know, up on the walls to try to get. And that was with Nicholas Becker, too, who was there when we were shooting that the sound designer. 
he had some stuff too that he recorded. I mean, through it all, I love the way the band sounds. I love that it's big, but not loud, you know? So mm-hmm. you kind of get the idea without it just being like piercing in your ear. It's really smart the way that they mix that into the movie. It was really smart. And I will also say for me as a hearing aid wearer, I was really concerned about exactly how this was going to work because if I hear something that's too loud and too piercing, it's physically painful for me in terms of my assistive devices, but then also in terms of just the way that I experience sound can just be kind of overwhelming at times, especially if there's a large gap in contrast. And I always thought in this film, there's such an incredible soundscape that's created that allows for those contrasts without them being so overwhelming that they alienate people like me. Yeah, I I totally agree. The way that they mixed it together is just so cool. And like I said, even I was blown away by it and how it finally came together. When he gets the cochlear implant turned on at the end, uh, spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen uh, Sound of Metal, but it's not necessarily like he gets his hearing back. He he gets a version of it back. And that scene... um, I, that's my favorite scene in the, in the movie is when he they turn it on for the first time and there's this moment of you know we hear it and then he hears it and then she talks and says how's that sound and you see his face and he's just confused and then when she adjusts it you see his heart break because he realizes oh no this is not there's this really subtle thing there too where he covers his ears for a second and then let's go, um, because this doesn't work anymore. The yeah. ears don't work anymore. It's all right here in your mind. Yeah. You know, it's essentially shooting a, a, a beam of sound into your head that says, this is kind of what it should be. But I, I love that moment between when it first gets turned on and the doctor says, "Can how does it sound? Can you hear me? Or, or whatever her line is. Um, there's this moment of just you hear the room and it's just, you know, everyday life, just the sound of hums and light lights on and like people walking around next door and stuff like that and that is just the ultimate like oh that's such a great sound you know um moment in a movie where you're just like it's communicated to everyone like oh no this isn't going to go how it wants him to go and then he realizes it and then everything all comes together and it's such a great moment where everyone on the movie came together in such a good way the way they shot it the, the writing that darius put there you know, he's not saying anything like, oh, this is terrible. I don't like it. What can you do? Can you push this button? Can you do that? button? like, he says almost nothing. He says, no, it sounds bad. And that's essentially his only line. Yeah. But Riz communicates it so well. And he was so prepared when we shot the movie. I met him on like a Friday before we started filming. We had like this get together barbecue. Like, hey, everyone, we're going to make some hot dogs and just have like a kind of little meet and greet. Um, before we start filming on Monday. So I went to that and I met him there and he was like a small guy with big thick glasses and an, and an accent. And I was like, okay, well, seems like a nice dude. He, he shook my hand and said, I'm really, really looking forward to working with you. I said, like, oh, me too. And then on Monday when we showed up, he looked different. He had like tattoos and he had bleached his hair and... He'd taken his glasses off and he had a different accent. Like it was the first time I'd ever seen just 
like a okay cameras are rolling and he just like you know almost like he put a mask on that looked like himself like a version of himself and it was really cool and he had these i think him and darius came up with this i've, I've read about all of this in interviews with them and i was there when they were testing them because they wanted to know how noisy it would be if they tried to use them on camera were these like audio blockers that he would wear. They looked like AirPods, but they were bigger because they would they were noise canceling, so they would cover kind of his whole ear. Mm-hmm. And they would just blast this white noise in his ears, you know, safely. But we would rehearse with him sometimes. Um, so he kind of could kind of get the feel as to what it would be like to not be able to understand. And he would, like I said, we would rehearse with that. And then they'd say, okay, uh, we ready to go? Okay, roll sound, roll camera, he'd pop them out, and then he would try to recreate while we were rolling kind of what it was like for him. Like a really good example of that when we were doing that was the diner scene, like right after he tells Lou for the first time, it's like three o'clock in the morning, and he's just like way too loud, and she's like super uncomfortable, kind of looking around, and he's screaming to the phone to his sponsor, all this stuff. That was kind of a one of those moments where he was trying to talk to her and she she couldn't he couldn't understand she couldn't understand it's like the first time they're trying to communicate is like he now has this problem and i thought that was really great too that he just he knew when to use it he knew when not to use it things that you take for granted working with people who sometimes don't immerse themselves fully in a role i mean the thing is too he he was learning asl he was never just sitting around on his phone just like you know, you, I always saw him kind of thinking, you know, you could see the wheels turning in his mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I just, I thought what he did was great. Like, you know, and as, as a sound person, like I, I love movies and I've worked with lots of people in lots of movies. And I could tell what he was doing was special and I, I, it came across even better than I thought it was. And, and he was great. You know, he never had a moment of, I don't want to wear this microphone. What are you doing to me? Like he always was down <laughs> for anything you know one time i had to move a mic because costumes was like we can see he's wearing a hoodie and like i had a mic here and they're like we can see kind of a a wrinkle in his sweater so i had to adjust it and i moved it and then they're like we're still seeing it so i had to go up and move it again and they're like i'm sorry like i don't know why but there's something happening here where it's like the way he's sitting during the scene, like his shirt is just like not going down. And I think your microphone's weighing it down or something. So I had to pull Riz aside and be like, I'm sorry, I got to completely redo your mic. And he's like, uh-huh. Okay. Call me Ruben. I was like, sure. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like um, he was, he was, he was great. Uh, I, I, I really hope that this launches his career. And as a person who didn't really know who he was before the movie, Venom was coming out at the time uh, that Tom Hardy uh, Spider-Man yeah, yeah. Off. Uh, Venom was coming off at the time. So when I looked him up, I saw that he had a movie coming out in like a couple of weeks and I asked him about it and he was like, Oh yeah, yeah. Let me know what you think. It's pretty, it was a fun experience. Like he would, he would talk to me, you know, like mm-hmm. it was never just a, you know, I'm an actor and you're a sound guy. So let's just keep a distance. And I feel like that was a big part of the collaboration too. If he had been, kind of at an arm's arm's length from the sound department on this movie which sometimes there there is you know it's when you're doing sound on a movie people don't want to know about it don't want to hear about it they just want it to happen and they want it to be great and that's just something we deal with because 
we get it. You know, we're not creatives. We're technicians, you know, so we're not going to say we need this light here because it'll be better for sound. You know, we're more like, oh, hang on, there's an airplane. And if you cut between these two characters, it's going to be tricky. Or Except I feel like sound had way more creative freedom on this project than it, on it did. almost any other project. And I wonder if part of that is because of the closed captioning as well. You knew you were going to have open captions going into it, and you knew you could express a lot of things that way. Well, I think a lot of it, too, is kind of what I was saying, where Riz was open to, mm -hmm. I mean, for lack of a better word, being experimented on, you know, with the sound department. And he never said no to us ever, you know, and every now and then he'd even bring ideas as to what things should be. And like I said, if, if he wasn't like that and if we couldn't really get to him or have access to him in a way that we needed to, then this might have been a completely different sounding movie. And when this movie came out, that was the first time ever that one of my movies was ever, you know, sound of metal, blah, 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 blah. Sound is amazing. And then there'd be like a whole paragraph about the sound. It's like, what? <laughs> like, that just does not happen. Like, you never get good reviews for the sound on like every, like if you go to IMDb right now and look up like the top five reviews, I guarantee they'll all say good sound. Just take any like movie that comes out, you know, say like some sort of zombie movie or a horror movie, and no one's ever like, "Wow, the sound was so rich." Like, as a horror movie fan, I can tell you, sound design is the number one thing I'm looking for in a horror film. Really? Oh yeah. Is it because you like the scare and the leading up to it, or it's both because of the scare and the way that it leads up to, but. Without good sound design and without good sound editing, sound mixing, you are not a part of that horror movie. Right. You have to be kind of in the world. You're not in the world at all if there isn't a good score, if there isn't good sound. I mean, you think about something like An American Werewolf in London, and everybody goes on about Rick Baker's fabulous transformation sequence when the one character transforms into a werewolf. But what yeah. really makes that scene is actually the sound because the yeah. bones cracking and the way that that plays out makes you feel like it's happening to you. Sure. And if it weren't for that, I don't think it would work. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I completely agree and that sound is kind of an underappreciated you know, it's one of our senses. So, you know, sight and sound. Like, we can't feel a movie, you know. We can hear it, and we can see it. No, you're right. Yeah, but it just doesn't happen. No one ever pays attention to it. I mean, we got nominated for an Oscar, and I've been kind of going through this, like, telling everyone, like, yeah, I was on Sound of Metal, and I was the production sound mixer. And they're like, okay, well, that's nice, but you don't get the Oscar. It's like, if we win, <laughs> yes, I will. I will get the Oscar. Are you serious? People actually say that to you? Yeah, because they don't think that sound gets an Oscar. They think it goes, like a lot of people, you know, not in the film community, but they think it goes to the sound designer. It's like, no, no, I was the sound mixer, you know. And saying that the sound mixer doesn't get an Oscar is like saying the cinematographer, you know, to do his job, because that's essentially what my job is. It's the creation of sound on set. Mm hmm and on this, on top of that, I was also talking to the post team. So we also kind of had almost like a, like a handoff. Like there was a time when they said, uh, okay, well, 
you know, cut. That's it, everyone. And I was almost like passing the baton on to them, being like, okay, we'll take what I did and make it awesome, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Not not completely unlike what an what a what an editor does, you know. Right, and it's so interesting to me how certain aspects of sound, which I still consider sound to be an incredibly creative and technical field that doesn't get quite the appreciation it deserves by any stretch of the imagination. A lot of people consider it odd that I love sound design so much, given that I'm hard of hearing. And that I have to experience it differently from how other people experience it. But I find that even though I can't experience it as authentically as I once could have, I just absolutely love it when I can be immersed in that world. I don't think that there's any film I've ever seen where I would rank it in the top films I've ever seen unless it had an outstanding sound score all of it i think you're a rare breed I, th I think a lot of people uh hear and see this they hear it and they see it kind of happening in conjunction with the movie but it doesn't register to them what it took to go into it you know it, it goes back to when we're making the movie like people don't want to know about how we're doing the sound they just want it to be great and when you're doing production sound is totally different than when you're in a studio in a studio, you have, you know, a controlled environment. You can just add so many things to get the highest sonic quality you can out of anything. In production world, you're just trying to get good sound and just chaos. <laughs> you know, somebody's not paying attention around the corner on their phone while there's airplanes flying overhead. And, you know, we're just trying to capture a moment in time when everything can just kind of be quiet enough for us to capture something in a way where it will be usable, you know, in a film and be played everywhere for as long as the movie exists. You know, if there's a flaw in the sound, then most likely it'll be there forever. And there's a lot of times where you hear stories about how some of the sound when they cut it together was like, Oh, it wasn't intentionally use that way i mean one of the really good examples is in the shining the little boy on the on the tricycle when he's riding around the overlook and it's like he's on the rug he's off the rug he's on the rug and it's like and apparently because i i really like that scene it's terrifying when you hear it because you know some something's going to happen or you feel like something's going to happen it's just like the way we are like oh no he shouldn't be that loud he's going to get attacked by ghosts or something you know <laughs> And from what I understand, that was like an accident. Like Kubrick didn't mean for that to happen. He just recorded the sound of the boy riding around on his tricycle. And then when they cut it together, you know, with the tension building up and the score and everything, it like was one of those moments where you're like, oh, no, <laughs> it yeah. just it just worked out that way, you know. And and again, that's how you do movies. They're just in pieces. And when you cut them together and everything, if everything's firing on all cylinders, like it just you know, you get magic like that. I've read a couple books um, about the making of certain movies. I'm always looking for what do they have to say about the sound department? You know, like uh, the the book that Carrie always wrote about the Princess Bride. There's this scene. Have Have you read that book? I have. I have. Okay. Well, I guess the first day of shooting, William Goldman was in the corner praying loudly while they were making while they were shooting the movie, and they kept going, "Cut! Who's talking? Who is that?" You know, and 
Rob Reiner. Reiner, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Rob. But the sound guy's name was also Robert. It was like Robert Eber, I think, who did Few Good Men and a bunch of movies with Rob Reiner back in the day. And I just love how Carrie remembers him going, hey, Rob. He says, yes, Rob. Like there's like they had like a like a back and forth because both their names were Rob, you know. I love how Carrie, I've, I've worked with Carrie. He's a, he's a great guy. And um, he's got just really great stories. And if you ever actually talk to him, he'll do all the impersonations of all the characters <laughs> when he talks about when he, like, he, he's just a great guy to tell stories. It's almost like he's telling you a bedtime story when he like talks to you. Um, another really good one is the psycho, the, the book about the making of psycho. Mm-hmm. That book I read, I mean, that's one of my favorite movies. So it wasn't hard for me to, to read or anything but they do say one thing about the sound department and it's one it's a negative thing they say uh there's a scene where arbogast the detective who's looking for marion crane is interviewing he's interviewing or not interviewing he's interrogating um norman bates when he kind of finds out more information and he finds her name written in the in the ledger um so he starts to kind of get in his face and it's this very tense scene where they're just like cutting each other off and he's like really getting in there and apparently the scene was so powerful that when Hitchcock said cut everyone left out of their chairs and clapped and the sound guy goes oh wait 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 bad for sound too much overlap you're not going to use that in the edit and I'm like oh because <laughs> I've definitely been that guy where I'm like wait but what about the you know this is so great for performance but are you going to be able to use it you know yeah should we get one that's clean yeah <laughs> yeah well, and you have to think about those things when you're actually shooting. It's never enough to have just the fantastic cut that's good for performance. I mean. Right. And that's kind of the thing that's different between sound and camera. When you get it on camera, you know, they're going to color correct it. And sometimes they'll like do minor visuals. Like uh, if the sky is cloudy, maybe they'll add some sun or something. I, I did a movie where we were in the desert for weeks and they let me kind of just swing the boom into the skyline sometimes. He was like, oh, we're going to replace that in post. I was like, really? So, you know, little minor visual effects that we never think of. It's like, oh, it's a movie in the desert. I wonder if there's like, you know, $100,000 worth of visual effects in this shot. Like sometimes there is. But when you cut a movie together and you and you watch it, you know that the sound is going to have to be heavily tweaked sometimes to make it sound fully all the way there. You know, and I'm not even just talking about the score. But just like the the layers of ambience, I did a, a horror movie early on where we had our sound designer there on set one day. So I was talking to her and she's like, well, usually I add, you know, something around 50 layers of sound design. I was like, 15? That's a lot. What is it like footsteps or like, you know, you add like, uh, like, what is it you add? She's like, well, 50, five, zero, five, zero tracks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I was like, well, what about this scene where, you know, she comes in the door, she walks up the stairs and she just started kind of layering. She's like, well, I'll have three or four of these and I'll have them pan this way and that way. And then, you know, I'll add some padding on the bottom. And then, you know, when she opens the door, you'll probably hear something outside and then that will get cut. And then it mm-hmm. switches to the muffled version of that. Like, I'm just like, whoa, that's intense, you know. Um, and then there's my track that I recorded with her line. <laughs> <laughs> you know and i'm like wow okay we're, i mean we're both in sound but like the way we approach it is totally different and like that's a good thing like one one thing complements the other it's not that one is more important or less important it's it's in conjunction 
and this movie um more than most more than any i would say that i've ever worked on is really kind of uh, every everyone brought something to the table and it shows i mean it's so great how the movie ca- came together i mean and getting an oscar nomination like no one was more surprised than me <laughs> <laughs> because you know think about a year where you don't work for 10 months and then you get nominated for an oscar and this movie had never crossed my mind once ever like oh this will probably be the movie that gets an academy award for best sound like it just didn't it just wasn't in my my thought process it is such an outstanding achievement and i think it's going to go down as one of those seminal works in sound that's so cool i'm so happy like i was talking we won we won the bafta for best sound did you know that i did i did okay and uh i was talking to them yesterday on set Someone was texting me yesterday. He's like, hey, you won the bathroom. What are you going to do to go celebrate? It's like, I'm going to work. <laughs> <laughs> I have to shoot all night. But I was talking to one of the producers and he's like, did you know you have a Wikipedia now? Like you're in, like you, you're a part of history, man. Like, I was like, whoa, that is weird. You know, and I, I knew that that was, there was a possibility of that happening. Like I'd work on something amazing and everybody who's an artist who's passionate about their field, you know, aspires for that, of course. But I didn't think of Sound of Metal in those terms. It was just like a great art movie. And sometimes I think maybe that's better that you're not chasing after an award. You're just doing what Mm -hmm. you can and doing the best you can and just making art in a way that doesn't have any stakes in the game. You know, like I'm sure there have been people who are like, oh, I'm going to do this, you know, sci-fi epic, you know, and hope that it gets recognized so that I can get an award. And like, that's never been my thing. But I'm just so, like I said, no one's more surprised about this than me. And it's it's awesome. I mean, does this mean my career has peaked? (laughs) I don't think so. And I also really feel like this project has probably changed your idea of how hearing and sound work. And so it's going to influence everything you do from here on out. I mean, yes and no. I don't know if there's going to be a lot more movies about deaf characters. And even if there was, you'd have to read the script and kind of come up with your own solution. This, This movie, I think... I mean, like when when Tarantino made Pulp Fiction, suddenly there was like 10 Pulp Fiction type movies out the next year because everyone was influenced Mm -hmm. by it. Do you think Mm -hmm. this is the kind of thing where someone's going to be like, oh, there's a there's a character who got who turned deaf. And do you think that's going to be someone's going to be inspired? Well, given that Coda won Sundance. Yeah. I wonder what this sounds like on that movie. Do you think it's a similar thing? It's not at all from the perspective of the deaf characters. It's entirely from the perspective of the daughter. And I, okay. I had problems with that film for various reasons, but we don't okay. have to get into them on this podcast. But I mean, sun, winning Sundance doesn't necessarily equal award winner. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But it does mean that they got picked up by Netflix and a multi-million dollar deal. And it's so weird. Um, you know, I've had so many movies that I've been really excited about. And then they just kind of get swept under the rug. Netflix is definitely a great platform to show your movie. But that film that I did in the, in the desert, you know, for four weeks. And I was, I was thinking it was going to be huge. It was this movie. It had Keanu Reeves in it. It had Jim Carrey in it. He plays Mm -hmm. a toothless cannibal. It's not a comedy. 
I know. know the movie you're talking about. Okay. And, um, you know, it was, it was Annapurna Pictures, you know, who had made yeah. huge movies. Yeah. And uh, it's just nobody, nobody saw it. You know, and it's on Netflix. So it's just weird when things go out in the ether, how they hit and how they don't. Yeah. And the movie's called Bad Batch for anyone mm-hmm. who wants to check it out. It's not by any means a bad movie. It's just, it just didn't hit like you would think it would. Yeah. And it's by the same director who directed A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. And it's a very unusual film about cannibalism. Right. It's a post-apocalyptic romance movie that definitely has a lot of cannibalism in it. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that movie was going to be huge and it just didn't, it just didn't happen. And then I did this movie in Birmingham, Alabama, which was like the biggest budgeted film I'd done. You know, it was like in the 15, 20 million range and they fired their sound guy on day one. And I got a call and they're like, Hey, um, can you pack your stuff and be here tomorrow? Cause we're firing our guy at the end of the day and we need you to start tomorrow morning. It's like, wow. So I struck a deal with them and I went down there and it was a great script. Really cool. It's this movie called office uprising. It was in hall H at comic-con one year. It was just, it had so much stuff going for it. And then it came out as a Sony crackle original. Ugh. Like, Ooh, that, that's not a good distribution. No, not at all. But I mean, Everything is so uncertain about film distribution. Yeah. I mean, Destroyer was kind of similar, too. Yeah. Again, Annapurna and Nicole Kidman was nominated for Golden Globe. It was Karin's movie, follow-up to The Invitation, which is a great movie if you've never Mm -hmm. seen The Invitation. As a horror fan, I'm sure you've... Yeah. 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 Of course. Of course. Okay, there's some really great sound design in that, too. There Uh, is. I mean, I think that was phenomenal. And I really liked what you did on Destroyer, too. Destroyer was great. It was, I love working with Karen. She's one of my favorite directors I've worked with. And again, it was that thing where I got the call to do her next movie. And it just, it was such a great feeling. The invitation was interesting from a sound perspective because my interview with, when I talked to Karen the first time about it, she said, I want to have overlapping dialogue and I want to not have to worry about it in post. And I wanted to be able to just kind of, work in conjunction with how I want the movie to be chaotic at certain times. And uh, I want it to be used, you know, because when you're shooting, say if we're shooting like someone's coverage and there's six other characters off camera, you're only kind of getting what's on camera. Yeah. She's like, I want to be able to hear everything all the time. And I want it to sound perfect so I can use it in the edit. That sounds like an incredible ask. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, okay, well, let's just mic everyone all the time, even if they're off camera, even if they don't have lines in this scene. When everyone goes through hair and makeup, depending on whatever they're doing. And we were able to do it this way because the whole thing takes place in a day. So there's not like a, we're switching costumes every two hours to do another yeah. thing. And we would just get everyone in line. And me and Eamon, the, the boom operator, we would just mic everyone one at a time. And it would be like a 15 minute process. Um, and then once they were set, you know, it'd just be swapping batteries. And, you know, they were all like, okay, well let's just leave our mics on all day. And I would like maybe take the pack from them during lunch and stuff. And Everyone seemed pretty great about it. And when they all started dying one at a time, I was like, Oh, thank God. One less mic today. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You know? I love it. <laughs> um, there's this great moment in that movie too, with John Carroll Lynch, when him and um, Logan, 
um i forget their character's name it's like pruitt and will maybe yeah i think Um, that's right when they're kind of going at it at the end of the movie john carroll lynch before he gets stabbed to death with the bottle or whatever i forget how he does or he smashes his head in or something he lets out this death rattle that we never rehearsed and if you watch the movie again he just goes like he just bolted out it's like a and like it came out of nowhere. I had no idea it was coming. And you can hear it in the in the audio for a moment where I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I had to turn his, his volume down because it was going into the red. And I, I can hear it. It's so subtle. Like for, for like a microsecond, it clips at the very beginning and then oh. turns down. And, you know, it, I can hear the movie. And it's like, oh, that's too bad. I wasn't fast enough. But at the same time, I have this moment where I'm like, oh, I'm so glad they used the thing I recorded and didn't just try to recreate it. And that's kind of how Karen works too. She's like, I want everything. I want the performance and the dialogue. You know, she doesn't want to have to tweak anything in post if she doesn't have to. Yeah. Where I've worked on movies where it's the other way around where they're like, uh, I mean, I did this movie with Uma Thurman where she was British in the movie. And on day two or three, they said, Oh, don't worry about it. We're going to have her loop all her lines so we can get the accent. We can nail the accent down. I'm like, what, what, uh, why, why, <laughs> you know, it makes for a much less organic experience overall. Yeah, well, you should watch both those movies back to back. Watch The Invitation and then watch The Con is On with Uma Thurman. Okay. And tell me what how the audio... Like, I mean, if if you're uh, wondering if fixing the audio in post changes the performance of a movie, that I think your answer is in those two films. <laughs> those are just little things that I, you know... I, it's so great to have someone you can collaborate with, I think is the way that I like. I don't like to just be the sound guy. I like to be the guy who likes to be able to help a director fulfill their vision, even if it's a you know not necessarily in conjunction with what I agree with. Right before the pandemic, I filmed that movie with uh, Mike, Mike Mills' movie with Joaquin Phoenix that's coming out. It's called Come On, Come On. Mm-hmm. And he had a very specific vision for how he wanted the audio to be. And it's also another very audio-centric film because Joaquin plays an audio mixer in the movie. He's walking around with a with a recorder and a boom mic recording ambience all around all the different places he goes. He's interviewing kids in character. You know, he, he plays like an NPR type of audio documentarian. Mm-hmm. So he's like a, a real-life guy who can go around and kind of cut together a piece of um, kind of... And like, like I said, like NPR, or like um, I'm trying to think of what is it? TED Talk is that another kind of yeah, TED Talk or Moth Radio Hour, yeah, or things like that. But like a really high quality, like he he plays kind of like the top of his field in the movie. He's not just like a like an eccentric artist doing it or something. He's like a very I really love that approach where he's like, oh, this is what like the real guys do. He's not just like the weird guy who does it like in the back of his van or something, you know, like, yeah. And so there was a lot of kind of, it's a prop recorder, but we want to be able to use it and use what he's doing, you know, and he would hit the record button, but at the same time, there was so much happening. I could never rely on that ever happening correctly. And it's him. And there's a, there's a kid actor in it too, who plays like his nephew who also uses a recorder. Sometimes if you're handling the way that they have it, sometimes it doesn't work. So I wanted to make sure to get a backup to all that stuff. And then there's a scene at the end where he's like listening to all those recordings. So I wanted to make sure like 
as a viewer, you could pinpoint to, oh, that's what that sounded like when they were there. That was what that sounded like when they were here, you know? So there's scenes in the movie where it's like the audio comes back and you hear kind of the sound of him recording the ocean or him recording the trains in New York or him recording the boats in New Orleans. And I wanted it to be like, oh, that's a memory. Like almost we could have like an audio memory of how things sounded when we were there 20 minutes ago in the movie. So I tried to like walk around and, you know, made sure we had it clean. And if not, we could like get it another way and stuff. And it was just a lot of thinking that way, which is something that Mike said he wanted, but like, it's not always my instinct to record audio unless I know we're going to use it. I mean, sometimes you don't want to give them sound that's bad because you don't want to give them something that they won't use or they could use that you didn't like the way it was recorded, you know? Yeah. There's always kind of that game too, but with Mike Mills, it was more like, I want to give him more sound that he knows what to do with. So he has every option in the world and then he's not digging through, you know, Google searches looking for the sound of New York train and like insert here, (laughs) you know, like I wanted to give that to him. I wanted it to all be original. So there was a lot of kind of, uh, what can we do? How can we get it? Let's go, let's go over here. Let's do that. Let's do this. Oh, you guys are setting up for this shot. I'm going to go over here and record that, you know, like, yeah. That was a different film. And like he interviewed me early on and he's like, I want a sound department who I can take with me to every location. Cause usually when you shoot a movie in LA, cause we shot that in LA, New York, New Orleans and Detroit. And you, on a low budget film, you know, you kind of just hire department heads for the leg of that movie. Yeah. So you get, you get a movie like this and usually there's like a New York mixer, a New Orleans mixer. And he's like, no, I want someone who can essentially be my sound guy and help me fulfill my vision as a whole. And that was so great because that's rare now too. And I mean, movies like that now during the pandemic just don't happen. They don't happen. Yeah. I mean, no one can afford to do that anymore. Right. And when I said I didn't think of Sound of Metal as ever an Oscar, like, oh, this movie could like go all the way. When we were filming that movie, that was the only time I was, I was ever like, oh, this could be like actually seen and maybe even be up for an award one day. <laughs> I mean, Mike Mills, Joaquin Phoenix, has some pretty big Oscar bait right there. Yeah, yeah. And they were great. I mean, again, Joaquin was never like, oh, don't, don't, don't do that. I don't want to do that. I want to just work on my performance. He was really into it and collaborative. And that what, that's what makes the movie better. Wow. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of this about your experiences. And I want to wish you congratulations. And do you want to give the Oscar speech right now? Sure. Uh, I'd like to say thanks to my mom and dad, Eric and Mickey Blade, and my wife, Roseanne Blade, uh, who's also a sound mixer, to my daughters, Katie and Carly. Never give up your dreams. Never let anyone tell you you can't do anything that they think you can't do just follow your heart and it will lead you to places like sound of metal thanks to the producers chris and amy uh chris stinson amy green josh gonzalez thanks to my boom op jeremy eisner and thanks to darius martyr uh for creating this amazing project to bring in artists of sound who could really kind of create this soundscape and for everyone involved in the post-production who made this a worthy project for us to live on, to live on forever. Thanks everyone. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Something like that. I don't, I know the first words out of my mouth would be thanks mom and dad, just because my, my dad is my biggest fan right now. He keeps sending me text messages 
saying like, did you know that less than 7,000 people ever have been nominated for an Oscar? And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> did you know that, that all the movies that have ever been nominated for sound that have the word sound in the title have won? It's like, all right. <laughs> you know, like he's, he's, uh, he's really excited. And I already told him that if we win, he can put the Oscar on his mantle. So that is excellent. That yeah. is excellent. Well, congratulations on an amazing feat of sound. Thanks, Ariel. It's been really great. And Philip, please know that I really appreciate your work. And if you ever want to come back on and talk about a project you're working on, I would love to have you. Absolutely. Yeah, like I said, I'm a podcast junkie. So I especially love mo- uh, podcasts about movie making. And, you know, I, of course, I always gravitate towards sound. So let's do it again. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Sounds great. Thank you for listening. And thank you for taking a moment right now to reflect with me on the history of the land you are listening on now. Whether you are stuck in traffic or sitting in your office chair, take the time to look up whose traditional lands you are on now and what treaties govern those territories. I record this podcast on the site of lands stolen from the Manahoac people. I am grateful to work on this land and I acknowledge that we need to protect and honor the history of the indigenous people from other tribal nations that have made innumerable contributions around the world. I share this in the hope that my listeners may join me in honoring our past, present, and future. Without this land, this earth, and each other, we are nothing. Before I go, please take 30 seconds now to leave us a five-star review by clicking on support the show in the show notes. We don't want your money. We want your words. A simple RTO rocks my socks expands our reach and helps us keep bringing you great content and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter where we are at Omnibus Ride. You can also visit our website, omnibusride.com, where you can go to dive deeper into our content and learn more about the show. A special thank you to our amazing editor, William Das. We truly couldn't do what we do without him or Danielle. Be well, be safe, and keep in touch.